Welcome to AMDG. I'm Eric Clayton. In a few days, we in the United States will celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Dr. King is so often remembered for his dream of racial equality, so eloquently articulated in his speeches and letters. But as my guest today, Dr. Nicholas Mitchell of the Jesuit Social Research Institute reminds us, Dr. King's legacy is one that calls us to continue challenging the status quo, to live as radically as he did. From Black Lives Matter to prison reform, Dr. King's dream remains in many ways just that, a dream that demands action, commitment, and change. Dr. Mitchell reflects on King's legacy for us as Catholics and members of Jesuit institutions. Dr. Mitchell is a native of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He earned his bachelor's and master's degree in history and his PhD in curriculum and instruction from Louisiana State University. Over the last nine years, he has served as a teacher in both the public and private school systems in the community college system and at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. He's also a trained community organizer, and in 2016, he became a fellow at the Jesuit Social Research Institute with a special focus on race and racism. As we reflect on the legacy of Dr. King and the ongoing scourge race and racism play in our country, I encourage each of us to return to that most ignatian of prayers, the examine. Let us ask God to reveal where in our daily lives we have ignored or enabled racism, where we are blinded by our privilege, and where we need to ask forgiveness. All right, Dr. Mitchell, thank you for being part of our AMDG podcast, and welcome. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start, um, as uh, just to get to know you a little bit, if you can tell us a little bit about your work and, and the kind of projects you're thinking about and focusing on these days. Okay. Well, um, currently, I am the um, Policy and Research Fellow for Race and Racism uh, with the Jesuit Social Research Institute at uh, Loyola University in New Orleans. Um, so that's, you know, racism is not exactly a, a particular uh, policy area is it so much as it stretches over quite a few. So a lot of things that come across my desk are criminal justice, education, um, you know, social safety net, um, hate crimes, but I do have a particular uh, focus in uh, uh, various forms of bigotry. You know, how are they? How do they coalesce? How do they spread? And very much their impact on uh, public policy creation and the environment in which public policy is creating. So, just general politics and general uh, social discourse. Right. You're spending all your, your time, uh, you know, researching and thinking about race and racism. I wonder what you think is missing from our country's current conversation about race and racism and how might we begin to kind of fill in those gaps? I think we have a really bad understanding of American history and American race relations. We don't talk about race relations uh, as a history. We, uh, you know, things that have a, you know, that, that very much have continuums. But also they have, uh, you know, we have these sometimes processes of, well, you know, there are periods where maybe the race relations look like they're improving and then things get worse or, or maybe it's all calm before the storm. You know, so we speak about it, in my opinion, in a very ham-fisted way. So I think one of the big things we often have to remember is that the... You know, the United States as a as a liberal democracy has only really existed since the end 
of the civil rights movement. So that's effectively 1968. So can, can you say more, more about that? What, how would you define those terms? Well, yeah, uh, well, a liberal democracy in our sense is a, uh, you know, is a participatory you know, democracy, uh, a representative democracy, you know, some people call it a republic, and that's fine. You know, the American system that we all know, if you really think about it, in the United States, a large swath of people could not participate in those systems if they lived in the Jim Crow South, which was a huge bulk of states. It, was a, it wasn't the majority of the states, but it was a lot of them. And so what, I mean, what else would you call a government in which millions of people have no particular say in how the laws are created, the governments, how these laws affect them or even their basic welfare. And that was, I'm 37 years old. I think there's a better way to put it is this. I'm 37. I'm the first generation of African-American born in the United States into neither a condition of slavery nor Jim Crow oppression. And that's something we, we very much have to come to terms with it, that the liberal democracy where you know, everyone, you know, who's a citizen can vote is very new in the American experience. And a lot of and people like my parents, uh, they didn't get their rights to vote well into their lives. So my grandparents, you know, God rest their souls, they were already married with children who were adults and going to college when they got to write the vote in Louisiana, because up until then it was it was barred. So you have this entire reality where uh, black life and indigenous life and Hispanic life and Asian life is very, it is with the complicity of the federal government in many places and the overt attempts of the state government are locked out of uh, economic uh, prosperity or really even having the options to live where they want to live, go to school where they want to go to school, go going to school where they want to go to school and exercise their basic civic rights. So, I mean, comparatively in that sense, I argue that the United States is like a lot of former colonial countries that we're, we just started doing this multi-ethnic, multi-racial democracy thing right. So I think that's something, and those are all objectives. Um, so those are all objective facts about Jim Crow and whatnot. So I think we often forget that. And on the flip side, you know, uh, I mean, white supremacy is very ingrained in the American foundation. So is resistance to white supremacy. We often leave that out, that ever since the beginning, the founding of the country, there were always people resisting slavery and resisting genocide. And a lot of those people, um, a lot of those people were white. So there's a tension there. You know, we talk about it often in the popular culture as is, it's this inevitable just uh, steamroller of white supremacy. But we're not acknowledging that there has always been people pushing back on pushing back on that. Uh, the end of Jim Crow didn't happen in a vacuum. That had been an ongoing project for decades. The resistance to slavery was was even in the. You know, and that was one of the arguments that almost derailed the uh, the Constitution. 
and the Constitutional right, right. Convention. Because though everyone was aware of how absurd this was, you had people like John Adams and Abigail Adams, you know, and going for, you know, going further, going forward, Frederick Douglass, people like that. So, I think one of the big problems. Say all of that. I say all of that, and to say this, I think we have this very simple conversation about race relations in America, where the truth is far more messy and far more complex, but also it has a space for for really transformative and transgressive conversations. Yeah, I, I, um, I, it's very staggering, those uh, kind of statistics that you're laying out there that, you know, you as the first generation um, kind of living in this kind of new reality. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I've, I've been listening to this podcast, uh, the Washington Post, that walks through each of the presidents. Um, and it, it's become clear, and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm no historian, but it's, it, it's become even clearer to me that, as, as you said, right, race relations and, and our ability to navigate well or poorly has really hamstrung, um, you know, our kind of grand experiment of democracy over uh, the course of our country, which, you know, I think so often is reduced to a few, um, you know, moments in historical memory, you know, civil war, civil rights, Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. what, what are those other moments you think that perhaps we don't hear about uh, in our high school uh, uh, history classes, you know, that that are important to this resistance, as you say, that, that are important to kind of um, yeah, historical memory uh, of our country. So we can talk about race and racism uh, in a more productive and holistic way. Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, I think one of the really big things we need to talk about is the span of time. Um, so personally, I and I, this is often a refrain you'll hear. Well, well, you didn't know anybody who was a slave. Well, that's very true. I was born in 1982. But my grandparents, who both passed when I was in university um, studies, so well into my 20s, they absolutely knew people who had been actual slaves in the United States because those people don't really pass on until the 1930s and I think maybe the 1940s at the latest. So this just passed out of living memory. So, I mean, I think key events we never really talk about is, I mean, things like, um, you know, we talk about Jim Crow, we talk about, you know, often like Rosa Parks sits on a bus and there are water fountains. We don't talk about things like the Tulsa race riots where mm -hmm. they, you know, where a, a white mob destroys the Greenwood uh, neighborhood, which was commonly called Black Wall Street, um, the HBO show Watchmen started off with a with a, a a depiction of that, and a lot of people were just shocked. But they thought this was fiction. Like, no, that's real. Like hmm. that during Jim Crow, there just wasn't this um, just pervasive racism in that way. Often it turned violent. And how that was really the what typified Jim Crow life was, you know, if African Americans started to prosper, there's a good chance that a white mob will come and destroy everything because they were invested in uh, black people not being prosperous. We don't other things we don't often one of our big mistakes is we talk about race relation as a binary between black and white. 
uh, there that's not how this actually works. You have you know people you know who are you know people who are Hispanic. Um, so you know you have all these states you know Texas, Colorado, California. Those are Spanish names. A lot of those cities have Spanish names. Those cities existed before the United States. So. We don't talk about what happens to those communities when they get absorbed into the United States. Um, you know, we don't, we don't talk about, you know, the historic relationships between um, African-Americans and indigenous people or, or you know, we dismiss the indigenous societies and states as tribes, things of that sort. Um, we don't talk about the culture unto itself about, you know, you have all these different types of people um, in the United States, they're clearly influencing one another. And so, you know, American culture is this very multiracial culture, but even white culture, uh, which is the combination of various European cultures, but also their exposure to indigenous ideas and cultures and Asian and Hispanic and African-American. So nothing's pure. In that regard, um, I'm in New Orleans right now, and you know, one of the th- reasons people come here is they come for you know the Creole culture. Well, the Creole culture is a combination of quite a few cultures. Right. You know, we have the you know heavily African American, but also influenced by French, Spanish, Indigenous, later American. Um, so, I, I think really the entire way we frame these conversations about race don't really do the reality justice. And I think it's often because we pretend that race is this ancient idea that's thousands of years old. It's not. Um, It's a fairly recent idea. And if you really think about it, um, sorting people by their skin color is an absolutely absurd way of categorizing people. It doesn't tell you anything. Right. Um, I mean, okay. you can ask, you know, Irish and Polish people are both white. They can't even communicate with each other. Um, people from, uh, you know, Ghana and people from um, the Congo, they're both black, but those are radically different cultures. Um, it, 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 there's very little in common. This is really, race has always been one of the, you know, I, I, I really believe that race is a um, that racism and race were made to justify brutality. In the sense that, well, I know these people are human because you know a, a scream and a child cry in the same in every language. But we're going to come up with this idea. And we're going to start branding people. You know, race is very much an ideology put on the body. You don't have a choice in it. So we're going to brand this person black, this person white, this person indigenous, which then, well, I can do things to this black person or to that indigenous person because of this stamp I've uh, I've put on them. It's really a way to justify all sorts of brutality. And uh, racism enables a person to ignore the screams of the people they're brutalizing. It's, it's just one of really one of humanity's worst ideas. Yeah, and, and certainly we, we see kind of where people are and when people are, uh, their, their you know, designated race can change, right? As, as yeah. you know, in our own history in the U.S. And, and certainly as you look across cultures, 
Uh, I want to layer another kind of element into that conversation, and, and that is religion and, and faith, um, and particularly as we think about um, Catholicism and, and Jesuit institutions, of which you and I are both a part. Um, just last year, a little over a year ago, the, the bishops published their pastoral letter uh, against racism, Open Wide Our Hearts. I, I wonder what that, uh, what that has done, uh, what you've seen that do, if anything, um, what your own reflections are on that letter. Again, as, as we're thinking about, um, you know, that, that was a 2018 letter, right? So very recent, uh, and yet so much of this is, is you know, continues to be in flux and, and demand our attention. Yeah, well, um, I read it. I thought it was a very uh, well-struck letter. Um, one of the primary authors, uh, Bishop uh, Fob, is from Louisiana, um, which is, you know, I'm, I'm from, originally from Baton Rouge myself. Um, the I think the letter is very much rooted in the times, which is good. Um, that's very good. It's very much a recognition of what's going on. And not in just the United States, but globally, we're, we're seeing these these old hatreds that I think a lot of uh, people had thought were behind us bubble back up to the surface and very much take to the streets. So I think, you know, the you know, the bishops tackling the, the issue head on and acknowledging what has happened, what is happening and why and its impacts were uh, those are pretty powerful statements um you know for and especially you know for the you know for the catholic church which you know as an institution the catholic church has been you know very involved in um you know human history but especially in the, in the western hemisphere for centuries right. so it, it, you know and it's a an institution that very much looks back on its past and you know, admits that we should, this was a mistake, this was wrong, and really seeks to correct itself, which is a, I think is a, I think is a wonderful thing. I, I, I'm a big believer in institutional memory. So to me, the, the statement, um, you know, the letter Open Wild Our Hearts is very rooted in uh, institutional memory and uh, very much taking on the gravity of now. And, um, you know, I really, you know, I really, really respect it. Uh, I mean, when, uh, I believe his brothers and sisters to us in the seventies was also an equally powerful statement. So I think the two really do. Uh, they're really great companion pieces to uh, one another. So, so speaking of the gravity of now, you know, we're just a few days away from Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and I wonder if you can reflect a little bit on what his legacy uh, demands of Catholic institutions, and particularly uh, of our Jesuit institutions. Um, and if, if the pastoral letter, Open Wide Our Hearts, um, gives us a roadmap or, or any um, guidance that might be helpful in realizing his dream. Okay, well, um, I think one of the really central things that uh, people really need to remember about Martin Luther King was really how... Um, I mean, how revolutionary King was in the sense that he completely upended the established American order. And he does this really by invoking a lot of a lot of things we don't really talk about as much anymore as we used to. I mean, um, 
Kang's entire eth uh, ethos is very much rooted, of course, in uh, religious tradition and you know the African American church, but that itself is rooted in these notions of you know human rights and you know natural rights. So you know what King really argues is that the entire Jim Crow system and racism is to itself a violation of natural of the natural rights that all people enjoy. You know, the right to movement, the right to speech, um, you know, right down to the right to, um, you know, live where they want to live. So how does that uh, relate to, you know, the uh, to a Catholic situation is any you know, they King had a lot of Catholic support, a lot of Catholic clergy and uh, religious men and women who did uh, support him. And I think that's the, you know, that's the bridge. And it's very much recognizing. And um, I think the uh, the pastoral letter very much strikes this note very hard that um, I mean, racism very much violates the uh, you know, a human beings, natural rights. That's what, that's what it's designed to do. And it also violates natural law. Natural law dictates there is no hierarchy of human beings racially. That, that sort of thing does not exist. You know, that all humans are, you know, equal in, you know, really equal for the law, equal in the eyesight of God and equal you know, equal in nature. You know, they may, individuals have different talents, but none of that corresponds to this made up idea, you know, of race. So I think really what the legacy of King is challenging this most horrific fiction, because race is entirely a fiction. And I think that's very much reflected in the pastoral letter. Um, I mean, truth be told, when it comes to racism and race itself, we have, as a species, we have inflicted so much horror upon ourselves in the name of a fiction. And I think we had to be willing to acknowledge that, that, you know, this is an absurd idea, you know, eugenics was wrong all human beings you know are equal we have to accept that that all human there is no differentiation of you know of race within the species what do you think prevents us from accepting that in your in your research in your in your reading but also just in your lived experience what what is the thing that we should be kind of looking within ourselves uh, and, and exercising, uh, you know, to, to get rid of, uh, that, that's preventing us from living that way. I think um, people really buy into the idea of race, one, because it's taught. It's very much taught and, you know, not necessarily even in schools, which we do, which, you know, the, the problem, one of the more complex aspects of race is that despite it being a fiction, we have given it mm -hmm. this very material weight so you know we have to acknowledge what this idea has done but um 
I mean, in my personal life, I have, you know, the racists I have encountered, very few of them were ignorant. It Racism has a buy-in. It's, you know, when, when a lot of people talk about um, white privilege, one of the things we often forget is, I mean, what white privilege really is, is this this bestowing of some sense of superiority for just being white. Mm. Um, and what that does is it gets those people who really buy into it to ignore what's actually happening. So it's this, um, it's this weird uh, anesthetic that, that very much covers up a lot of, you know, in a lot of issues, I think broader, more in a more broad sense. Um, I mean, racism allows people to claim knowledge about the world and individuals they cannot possibly have. Um, so, you know, they, they start looking for these insane trends mm. about that, that um, reveal some sort of biological um, tendencies of the races, which... I mean that's just absurd on his face, but there was a time, and we have to remember. We have to we have to remember as a society, we just threw eugenics into the dustbin of history. That's that was taught science for decades, if not centuries. Until when? Give us a so, give us a time frame for when. Like how recent in our kind of memory is that? Well, yeah, I think you know people still try to. To, to, to trudge up some eugenic arguments every now and then. But um, I think really, I mean, race science is old. I and mean, people start trying to, the proponents of racism start trying to make their stuff scientific as early as the Enlightenment. But it hits its, its heyday, I would, I would argue. And, um, you know, if any historians uh, listen to this and they disagree, uh, this is a loose citation, so I could be wrong. Um, really, it's after World War II mm. uh, with the, the revelation of the horror of the uh, the Nazis who very much got inspiration for all of their Nuremberg laws and a lot of their their own race science from the United States. That was our thing in the early 20th century. So really after the Second World War, we as a society start dropping all of this really due in large part to the fact that the entirety of uh, eugenics was junk science it was a lot of falsified reports and people just trying to to justify their own racism because you know if it's scientific then that doesn't make you a, a <laughs> racist it makes you a race realist which i think is the new term that racists are trying to call themselves, which is which is laughable unto itself. So um, now, you know, I don't know how old you are. My grandfather fought in the Second World War. So this is still in living memory yeah. for, you know, for a lot of people. And, you know, the fights, I mean, the fights still go on, you know, every, like I say, every now and then um, you, you'll see somebody trying to talk about how um, you know how human you know racial diversity you know is a is a real thing that um, affects cognition and they'll start bringing up IQ tests and 
and things of that sort. Um, so it's um, it, it, it's that sort of it, it lingers on, right. but you know we're just moving past even globally. We're just moving past the colonial world where this was used to justify all sorts of international arrangements and public policy. I, I wonder, and, and to, to do that, right, to move past, I, I I think it's so easy for us to, you know, sit here in January of 2020 and, um, you know, pretend these things happened so far in the past that, that they don't impact the, the present and, and, you know, racists are over there. And, and certainly I have nothing to do with that. But, but as, you've alluded to throughout our conversation and certainly as you know any you know brief glance at the news can reveal is is that you know the structures uh, that keep racism in, in place and, and certainly the actions that keep racism in place you know continue and I, it occurs to me that you know in, in our kind of Ignatian Jesuit tradition um, the examined prayer right that daily prayer where we reflect on 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 where God is at work in our day and where God is inviting us to to move to seems like a really helpful tool to uncover um, white privilege uh, bias racism uh, in ourselves each each day and, and perhaps in our community I, I wonder if you have any reflections or tips you know if someone wanted to say you know what I, I need to really uh, probably as we all we all should say I need to really interrogate my own life and 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 root out those those sources of, of, of racism and, and privilege how would we do that kind of rooted in that Ignatian tradition what what tips or, or ideas do you have to, to begin that kind of work, either at the individual level or, or perhaps at the community level. Okay. Well, I think it's really important to, to remember we can't put race relations in a binary. Mm. So um, when it comes to privilege, there are many types of privilege. Uh, white privilege is a form of, uh, of privileges, but it, as you start spinning that around, um, that uh, you know, that, that, that becomes more evident, you know, you know, for example, you know, I'm a, you know, I have a PhD, so I have, you know, I have the privilege of my educational credentials and I'm, I'm also able-bodied. Mm -hmm. So I have, I have the privilege of being able to not have to navigate something as simple as entering a building. And, um, I think it also, people have to remember that being born with privileges it's that's literally what happens. You're born with them. You didn't, you didn't seek this out. You didn't go to go to a store and like I want this type of privilege. <laughs> it just was something that was given to you. So it does not make you having privilege, does not make you morally invalid. It it does not do that. Really, being aware of your own privileges is very much being aware how the society has structured itself. Um, and I think, you know, from an examined point of view, I think that's a huge, a huge aspect to sit there and think what another way of privilege is thinking of privileges, benefits and immunities. I think that's really the best way to look at it. Uh, what benefits do I get from this, whatever category I was born into by accident and by chance? And what things are, are what things am I immune from? because of this interesting so you know i'm um you know i'm, a, I'm an african-american male in um south louisiana an immunity i have at current is no one is ever going to question 
my citizenship status. I don't have to worry. I have immunity from being caught in that that really awful situation, which we've seen of people, you know, you right. know Hispanic brothers and sisters being, you know, being put into this deportation system, and they are they are completely U.S. citizens. They are naturalized, not even naturalized. They're born here. So I don't have to worry about that. That's, that's something that would be very unlikely will happen to me. So I have to be aware of that and how certain having certain benefits and immunities, if you aren't aware of them, will blind you to another person's reality. Once you become aware of your own benefits and immunities, you can start to see the world, how other people live it, and it becomes a little bit more accessible. I don't think you'll ever completely understand. It's not your lived experience, but you can start to you can start to to conceptualize a world where you didn't have that benefit and immunity. And if you didn't have that benefit and immunity, how would you go about life? What are the things that you would think about? So, I think taking that assessment of yourself as part of the exam really will orient you towards an anti-racist sort of sort of worldview and i also think it's it, it's fair to admit that we have all been bombarded with a lot of racist curriculum from the society i'm not even talking about schools right. that does color our worldview this you know you you weren't even aware you're getting this you're your child watching watching tv moving through the world so acknowledging that you have probably been exposed to some racist ideas and you may have subconsciously or you know you're a child you absorb them without thinking becoming because once you become aware that the you've been getting this racist curriculum from certain places that's how you begin to deprogram yourself because i'm a firm believer in the fact that a person you can unlearn you know negative traits you can unlearn bigotry you can become a person that has that has no bigotry you just but it takes a lot of looking in yourself you know very much that that examine notion taking a look inward and being honest about what you see because once you see it now you can go about the steps of unlearning yeah, and removing those sorts of things. Again, to kind of continue this, to examine as our as our framing here, um, you know, there is that committing to to do better or to to live, you know, more closely with God, right? As a result of the examined prayer, uh, also in, in integral to the examine is is forgiveness, right? Is asking, re- recognizing our sins and our failings and. and uh, those moments of challenge, um, and then asking God, you know, to to, to forgive those. Uh, and I wonder, in this conversation, kind of continuing um, that frame, where does forgiveness come into play, both giving and receiving? How how do we speak of forgiveness with uh, with something that is so intrinsically, um, you know, structured into our society, um, and, and we still very much feel the the repercussions of of the hurt and the pain. Uh, you know, that, that, that has just been ongoing. So, so where does forgiveness come in? Well, I think uh, when we start talking about ideas such as racial reconciliation, 
that's where forgiveness comes in. But the thing people have to understand, you cannot expect someone to forgive something that is ongoing because that forgiveness becomes useless. Forgiveness only comes when the behavior has stopped. But that is on the macro level. We're talking about hundreds of millions of people at that point. Um, I think for the individual who wants to participate in racial reconciliation, I think the first big step is once you become aware of the privilege you have, and it could be, and I, it does not matter what racial group you know you fall into. This is going to be very individualized, and I think this speaks to all forms of uh, institutional discrimination. Um, because you know, racism is a form of institutional discrimination. They all do very much intertwine. It's once you become aware that you have this privilege, um, now you have a choice. You can ignore the fact that you have the privilege um, which and go about your life, which makes you complicit in it. You can actively, you know, revel in your privilege, which makes you an actor in it. Because, you know, we're talking about things that started centuries ago, but every generation is given a choice. And the third choice is you can actively resist this and undermine this in the interests of uh, social justice and, and humanity and really with creating a better, you know, you know, a better society. I think one of the things people often forget <clears throat> is when we talk about these dynamics between the oppressor and the oppressed, the oppressor has to dehumanize themselves in order to be that role. They have to shed parts of their humanity. So I think when we talk about forgiveness, you know, we have to first have these conversations about stopping the behavior and recognizing that we all have a choice, that we either will be active in perpetuating, you know, these uh, these disparities, we will be complicit in their perpetuation, or we will resist them. And I think it's very clear from a moral standpoint what we are called to do. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, and I appreciate that uh, kind of helping us walk through that you know, role that forgiveness and reconciliation should play, and and the steps that need to need to happen first, kind of in our own personal reflection, and certainly society writ large. Uh, before I let you go, I I wonder if you could just share uh, what's next for you at the um, in your work at the Jesuit Social Research Institute. Hmm. Well, um, what's on the docket right now is uh, is uh, the legislative session is uh is about to start so i'll be involved with some um some really social justice oriented um legislation you know bills are currently being drawn um so i'm really paying attention to things like for the social safety net and uh criminal justice reform um so you know it's really kind of taking everything we've talked about and actually applying it in a um, really on the ground or more specifically in the halls of power mm. at the uh, you know at the state capitol sounds like a lot of good work and um 
I really appreciate you taking the time to, to join us today on our podcast, and I look forward to, to seeing the fruits of your work uh, in, the, in the months and, and years ahead. My pleasure. Thank you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Mike Jordan-Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Doris Sump, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook via facebook.com backslash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, Go and set the world on fire.